Welcome to Questioning Your Answers podcast, where we explore beauty and transform our narratives. Today we are starting a new series that looks at the transformation of meaning. You know, we all construct stories to contain and express uh, what we under, the way we understand ourselves and our world. But often the, the meanings we've created can become stale. Our stories can become boringly predictable. And so this series is going to look at ways in which we can create new meaning and transform the narratives we construct. I'm with my, my uh, fellow hosts, Mary Ann and Tony Bartlett, and we're actually going to interview one of our hosts, Tony, today around one of his books. Yeah, and one of the ways in which we give our personal stories meaning is by placing them in the context of a larger story or a meta-narrative. And I know for many, including ourselves, the scripture provides that meta-narrative, a meta-narrative, a larger story, um, within which our own stories find new meaning. And so it's logical, therefore, that if our understanding of the big story changes, mm-hmm. so will the meaning of our individual stories change. And so, Tony, I just wanted to start with the first question for you. Um, your book, Seven Stories, which we've loved, um, deals with the concept of semiotic shifts. And um, this is huge relevance when it comes to the scriptures and can you just share with us what you actually mean by semiotic shift? Well, um, I think that we uh, human beings undergo what I call semiotic shifts all the time, that we're mm-hmm. engaged in changing our meaning uh, and learning new meaning. I, I just came away from a weekend with my three-year-old niece and mm-hmm. It's just amazing how you can see at the same time as she is um, learning how to behave and not behave on occasions, she is learning meaning. Um, She's discovered that there's this thing that you do with other people is that you communicate and 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 what we say and what we communicate is very important. So she at one point towards the end of the day, she came up to me and she said, do you know, Grandpa, uh, she said, um, it's very important to eat your food. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, that, that was something that's meaningful to her. Now, it's obviously mm-hmm. it, is, it, it is important to eat her food. And, you know, if she's not, she's, she's to be busy playing. So her parents have told her, that it's important, it's meaningful to her that she should eat her food, but she's trying this out on me. Yes. <laughs> so I say, why is it important for me to eat my food? So she goes away a little bit and then considers it and then comes back and she says, because you won't sleep well at night if you don't. So she <laughs> joins together two important bits of um, information. Stuff, information, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and and it's none of it is, is particularly relevant to me, you know, for me to eat well or how how that's going to affect my sleep. But what she did was she communicated meaning. 
And that was a semiotic yes. um, event for her. She was she was yes. packaging information and she was um, putting it together to, to tell me something which she thought would be meaningful. And and you could see that by the expression on her face and everything and and how how her, she went away and then came back. And it was all so important. You know the way kids have that look of him. What they're telling you is incredibly important. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, and you have to, you know, look at them and, and, and pay attention to what they're saying and, and accept it as incredibly important. But that's what human beings are doing. They're creating their meaning all the time. So in the, in it, the book. It starts from that. I just realized how early that process starts and how, how very soon we start developing frameworks of interpretation that's that right. we can rely on. That's exactly you know, even right. Even from that age. That's right. Now, the book, Seven Stories, How to Study and Teach the Nonviolent Bible, um, says that that's what the Bible has been engaged in. And we've been used to looking at it as a kind of moral or kind of um, transactional text. You know, if, we, if we do these things uh, which the Bible teaches, then we're going to get the reward of salvation. And that's and there's various elements in there that teach us this. But I'm not saying that there is no meaning to that. There's, there's, there's no semiotic content to that. But what I'm saying is that at a deeper level and all along the course of the Bible, um, there are these huge meaning shifts going on that are teaching us not so much salvation in that old sense, but how to be human in a new sense. So when you get to Paul and he, he tells us um, that in Christ there is a new human being and that he's, he's inviting us to be that new human being, that's the end of the journey. That's what God is – it kind of makes sense that if God created the world as a, as a livable space and he put human beings in it as meaning-consuming creatures – then ultimately there would be a way to make that meaning fully human, and as I, as we uh, argue in the in the book, seven stories, that that meaning ultimately is to do with nonviolence and to do with the nature of God as nonviolent. But that would be hard for human beings to learn at first. So there have to be these semiotic shifts progressively through the Bible to enable us to to actually, my like my little granddaughter, to say, oh. That's what's important to these people. That's what's important to God. That's what's important to this story. And maybe I can yes. pick that up and and I can assimilate it. Yes, and uh, you know what I find so beautiful about that conversation that takes place throughout the scripture is, if we think of any conversation, we we're not that open to change. If the person we're conversing with just comes and says. Everything you believe and think is wrong. Now, right. let me give you a new way of thinking. But very subtly through relationship and conversation with others, we come to see different perspectives and we start changing meanings. And that is a beautiful way of viewing the scriptures, that, that God is actually subjecting humanity to an intense conversation uh, and, right and we yeah. often we often uh, talk back and we misunderstand yes. and we misinterpret but he is so faithful 
um, just like we are with our kids or, you know, with grandkids, as you just uh, spoke about, there needs to be a patience Mm -hmm. to actually engage in the conversation that will take the conversation deeper, make it more meaningful and move it forward. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. It's not really important for me to have a meal <laughs> so that, and pick yes. up that information from her so that I will sleep well. I probably will, it'll do the reverse, but it is important <laughs> yes. for me to stay, stay in communication with my little granddaughter mm. so that little by little that communication will be enriched and, and get to altogether new levels where, well, both of us will be transformed. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think a, a beautiful part, um, Tony, that you deal with as well, uh, I think in the second story cycle is the one from violence to forgiveness. And, um, you know, that is a huge, a huge semiotic shift. Right. Yeah, Can well, you talk to that a bit? Yes, uh, yeah, th- th- we, we put that um, right at the beginning. It's the first of the shifts. Um, well, it's actually, sorry, the second. Uh, the first is from mm-hmm. oppression to justice. But we put that very quickly there because it actually corresponds to the book of Genesis. Um, and we believe that the book of Genesis was developed really in conversation with the issue of violence and the issue, mm. the perceived issues of violence in God and in, in human beings, um, that grew out of uh, a deeper reflection of, in the tradition. So we we put that there and and we talked about how um, in in the, in the first uh, what we call the primeval histories, the first eleven chapters. There's all these um, episodes, little stories like the Tower of Babel and, and the Flood, which are filled mm-hmm. with desire and violence, terrible violence, um, the, the annihilation of the, the whole hu- of human race at one point, uh, bar for a, a few survivors. So we're saying that's very, that's very deliberate, and um, mm-hmm. got, this has been laid out in, in the Bible. And then in chapter 12, um, Abraham or Abraham at that point is introduced as the beginning of God's solution. So really, uh, God is uh, up to that point. You know, you talk about the unreliable narrator. Well, up to that point, God is not very reliable. Yeah. God, God does all kind of weird things that you think. Well, why did he do that? And you know, <laughs> why did he prefer? Abel's sacrifice to Cain, that's going, that is going to cause trouble, you know. Any mm. parent will know <laughs> that. <laughs> he, just, he just wanders blindly into these things, apparently. Um, and it's because the narrator or the writer is trying to lay out the problem, the, the yes. depth of the problem. And then with Abraham, uh, God begins the, the pathway of a solution. And it really is, you know, get up and go to someplace I will show you. And that's because, you know, th- this is going to be a long journey and it's a journey not just, not just, or even primarily a geographic journey. It's this mental journey. It's this, it, this communic, com- communicational journey where yeah. uh, meaning has been going to be transformed. And you can see the importance with Abraham is that yes. he keeps faith. He's faithful so that you can't keep this. You can't learn unless you stick with the, with the program kind of thing. And, so that's very important, and 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 the 
the, the book of Genesis ends up with this beautiful story, which I think is entirely intentional. We think we see it as fairly random, but mm. that uh, one of uh, Jacob's sons, Joseph, provides for the feeding and the administration of the whole land of Egypt. Egypt is supposed mm. to be the enemy, the enemy that yeah. oppressed the 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 descendants of Jacob uh, yeah. for for generations, and yet the picture at the end of Genesis is this wonderful administration uh, uh, of food and peace that enables life for all. And I think that's not just you know like something that's going to be picked up by a Disney movie. So as yeah. the end of the story, <laughs> no, that's there intentionally. The, that's what God wants to bring about. It is a is, yes. is a world of peace, and you know I think the en- the end of the Bible, the Christian Bible, the um, uh, Book of Revelation repeats that repeats that motif yeah. with the uh, the city of the heavenly Jerusalem come to earth. It's the same thematic. It's the same symbol. It's the same semiotics of an earth mm. of peace. Uh, but of course, a huge journey has gone on between those two yes. things. And there must, so there might be much greater wisdom in that little little child's uh, words of how important it is to eat your food. <laughs> it's a theme that <laughs> seems to be spread throughout the. I know for myself, it's become more and more important. <laughs> but um, one point I wanted to um, kind of highlight: you mentioned the first eleven chapters of of the scriptures. Um, and the transformation of meaning that follows those chapters. It, it's interesting, um, many of our people listening will know this, but that most of the mythology, many of the myths that are pre the scriptures are very much focused on the same kind of stories and themes that we find in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. And it's almost like there was a fundamental misunderstanding from the human's point of view about who and what God is. And the solution, as you're saying, is starting to show itself from Abraham onwards. But those first 11 chapters, which, um, you know, the stories are really modifications of what we find in much older myths as well, of gods who delight in violence, gods that uh, get upset with and irritated with the people and decide to wipe them all out and start again and try something new. That theme is is um, both within the myths and within the first eleven chapters. But how beautiful it is to then begin this amazing shift, which is not that God has suddenly repented and become more gentle and and mm-hmm. kind, but rather humanity's understanding of how we created meaning, how we interpreted the events of our lives are now undergoing some intense conversation mm-hmm. with a God who doesn't want to be misunderstood. That's, that's absolutely wonderful. That, that, that is so true. And um, the, the thought that this God um, of the Bible is one who is 
actively but very gently and progressively but and non-violently transforming the conditions by which we are human and which we understand ourselves it's a much no, it's a much more attractive and, and profoundly um, loving uh, concept of God than a God who's got these rules and if you don't obey the rules then then things are going to get much much worse than they are now yes. <laughs> so it's it's uh, it seems to correspond to the deeper sense of the, of the Bible that we always feel that's there and especially the yes. the actions of Jesus in terms of transforming and healing people's lives where he 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 met people in need he would do something to restore their lives but he would also tell stories he's always telling stories mm -hmm. to try to influence to mold to affect their way of looking at the world yes. and so uh, that progressive change um through the transformation of meaning uh is is a wonderful way of looking at the scriptures and 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 very transformative transformative for us yeah. if if we do that and this whole conversation that's going on as as um a meaning is changing and i think just even the basic idea that meaning changes over the course of a story in the bible right. um will be new to some people right. uh you know we've all heard the question what does the bible say about this or that subject <laughs> as if yeah. You know, we assume that the Bible has one thing to say about it, but the fact is that meaning is changing as the stories progress, and we see that so clearly with the um, subject of sacrifice, for instance. Mm, right. That sacrifice does not mean the same thing at the end from the beginning. Very clearly. Um, yeah. yeah. The, the, the killing of another life um, – normally animal life but in 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 that first story or, or second story of Cain and Abel it was a human being um yes. and then God mysteriously even though he holds Abel to account he, sorry holds Cain to account says you know mm. where is your brother he still then looks after Cain so that so the the scripture at that point is acknowledging that sacrifice and even um Human sacrifice is somehow or other embedded in our um, progressive development as, as human beings. Yeah. But there are questions being asked about it right at the very beginning. But the solution mm. is not there at that beginning. So all, all you can get is questions. And, yeah. and going back a little bit to what Andre was saying beforehand about the similarity of these stories uh, to uh, world mythology, um, for, for example, um, apparently there are over 200 different stories of floods in world mythology mm. that you can, you can mm. find them throughout the world. And it, it stands to reason that a flood is a very dangerous and terrifying thing for human beings. So, mm. um, there would have been memories of floods all the way back. So yeah. what you've got is you've got these stories which are recognizable in world mythology, but what you're what you're doing is you're working with them and you're trying to find um, the, the key to the response. And, of course, the key that the response human beings normally make when they're under threat of any sort is, is a violent uh, response. And, and that yes. very quickly is, is one of um, picking on a victim, a surrogate mm -hmm. victim, a scapegoat, 
someone who's blamed for everything. And according to the uh, interpretation of René Girard, is, is this um, this writer and anthropologist um, who had worked in America at the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st, um, has and deeply influenced the the thinking of, of seven stories. According to that person, it's that resolution in, in the victim in the scapegoat by which human human beings have always um, uh, resolved their issues. And then, of course, violence is built in and they see the gods in those terms. The gods are, in fact, simply iterations, uh, examples of victims who have brought somehow a peace to the community Yes. And um, yes. by all the violence being discharged in them, and then somehow or other they restore order, and and therefore they are gods. But actually built into that is the use of violence in order to control yes. our universe, to give meaning. And so if... And if that... Go ahead. Go uh, ahead, Gan. I'm just thinking that that very pagan idea of violent sacrifice somehow satisfies uh, the wrath of the gods is something that is prominent early on in the scriptures. I'm thinking of the one king who was busy fighting a war and he's thinking that I'm losing it. But then he remembers uh, Yahweh loves sacrifice. So he he makes this promise that the first person who comes to greet me when I get home, I will sacrifice that person. And apparently Yahweh is so um, enticed by this proposition that he gives the victory. That's right. And, uh, and so the whole story of sacrificing people is very much embedded in the early uh, development of biblical stories. But then later on, we get to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and both of them gives a very stern warning to the people to stop sacrificing their children. Right. Um, and and they give them this warning, presumably because people were busy doing it, mm. um, right. just like all the, all the other pagan nations around. And so it is a wonderfully new way of reading the scriptures to actually see a progression in the meaning and the ideas that, yes, early Jewish thinking might have started with the same misunderstandings as most of the um, pagan communities around them, but God involves himself in a conversation with them that transforms these meanings over time mm -hmm. until it is almost the opposite in Jesus um, from That's what it, it meant in the beginning. That is yeah. exactly right. I mean, Jesus voluntarily surrenders his life not in order to create another sacrifice, which yeah. is the way we've read it. And we've read it because that's our semiotic structure. That's the way we've seen things. But that's yeah. um, that's changing today. The, the, the reason why he did it was to actually reveal to us, to show to us, to make plain to us what we do. <laughs> well, yes. that, yeah. This is what we do. We, we sacrifice and we kill victims in order to, to found and to ground our culture and our society. Yeah. But he's offering yeah. the very response by which he, he uh, met that violence, the one of forgiveness and love, who he was abused but did not abuse in return, 
as uh, yes. it says in Peter, um, that is the way, the new way of being human. That is, that is yeah. the new, that is the most, the ultimate semiotic shift and human shift. It becomes by that point, you kind of like, if, if you can follow that through, you, you tip over in, into the new humanity. You, you are, you are fully reprogrammed, should we say, or reconstituted. You have a new operating system and you become a new kind of human being. And that's, yeah. that was, that is God's. Uh, plan from the beginning and it would make sense that if if we'd got off on that wrong foot kind of so to speak that we have to kill a victim in order to make everything work it's going to be very hard for god to break through that 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 uh, shell of understanding yes. and 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 say the, the very the very form by which we understand god is going to be happy god is saying well yeah. well no it's not that and, yeah. and yet he can't break through because that would be another form of violence. He has to somehow or other yes. slowly um, mold that into something new yes. until finally this this new new human Christ uh, is able yes. to appear. It's so profound that, you know, with Rene Girard, um, the work of Rene Girard showing that in a lot of the myths, they would cover the violence. And, um, you know, <laughs> whereas with the biblical narrative actually reveals, no, this is what it is. It's it's violence. It's, right. um, you know, as that story mm. continues. Mm. And so we're able to actually look at ourselves yeah. in this mirror. And, yes. um, and so in that way, our stories can shift and, and move forward. Right. So, maybe, so maybe one, I'm thinking through specifically this idea of sacrifice and semiotic shift from, uh, and what we've done with your second story cycle is from violence to forgiveness. And I'm thinking of a way in which I can say it in a sentence or two to actually capture the heart of that semiotic shift. And maybe, so this is just the impromptu attempt. You can help me. <laughs> but um, sacrifice seems to begin in an act of violence, which we then, which humans do to other humans. You know, it's, a, it's murder. But because it brings peace to the community, you know, there's something sacred about it. And so the beginning of the meaning of sacrifice it is the violence we do, the sacred violence to appease or to please the gods. But in Jesus, the meaning is completely inverted mm -hmm. when he suffers our violence and he demonstrates that Violence is not something that is sanctioned by God. It is something that God suffers. Right. And and true sacrifice, therefore, is not the violence that we do to others or to animals, etc., to please God, or things we give up or whatever mm -hmm. to please God. But rather, true sacrifice, the way Jesus portrayed it, is giving yourself for the benefit of others mm. right. rather than sacrificing someone else in order to please an imaginary God. Right. And that, that, is, that is the Christian message. Um, 
Yeah. And people will all rec- always recognize that, you know, that is really what a Christian does. They don't retaliate. It says pretty clearly in, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, turn the other cheek. And of course, that's a, di- a very difficult thing in historical terms, but it's there. Everybody understands that's really what a Christian does. But what mm-hmm. we found very difficult is to see that that is what, as Andre just said, that is what God does. And that is yeah. the character yeah. of God. Um, and how can you have a God who does that? But it makes so much sense. It's so profound. And when you receive the Holy Spirit um, in the Christian experience, what is the Holy Spirit but the overflowing sense of God's nonviolence, that infinite, endless self-giving and love that mm. that is full of life and, and transforms your personality, your your situation and even can heal uh, the wounded uh, body and soul of, of, of the of the person. Um, yes. That is what the Holy Spirit is, and it's called holy. Uh, you could actually say, that, uh, I mean, the Scripture says there there are many spirits, and you must you must test the spirit. Well, what is the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is the nonviolent spirit, the nonviolent yes. spirit of nonviolent God. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I can't believe we're at the end of our time already. Uh, it feels like we've just scratched the surface of an enormously big <laughs> subject. And we'll continue this conversation. Uh, do, we, do we have three more minutes, uh, Andre? Yes. Yes. I just yes, want to give, I, I thought of this before this, I want to give an example of semiotic shift, a very, very basic one, so that people can, can see that, that we're, this is something that human beings are doing all the time, and it's very, yes. it's very important that we recognise this as part of our humanity. When I was a little boy, I don't know how old I was. I was probably not much older than my granddaughter. Now I was asked to draw a horse, and for some reason or other, I put human feet on this horse <laughs> instead of <laughs> instead of hooves. This horse had big, flat feet. <laughs> I can still see it in my mind's eye. And, of course, I had a little companion sitting at the desk next to me, and he kind of laughed himself silly. He said, you know, horses don't have feet. And, of course, I kind of knew that, but when it came to drawing it, I automatically put feet in. So I hadn't made the the full semiotic shift, you know, in terms of the construction, the, 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 the visibility and the signs by which we make meaning. I'd put something I was very familiar with, and I I needed to make a shift, semiotic shift to hooves rather than feet when, when it came to came to the horse. Well, the, God is trying to get us away from. Well, actually, He's getting us away from uh, from uh, claws and, and 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 spears and nails and whatever would hurt other people, creating a, a non-violent picture of a human being. So. That is something that is that I, I had to learn as a child, and we're now learning as as uh, adults. I think, and yeah. that's what the, what the scriptures is doing is giving us giving us real feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that. such a beautiful example, Tony. And um, we have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with you, and yes. we look forward to more, many more, <laughs> many more. Well, thank you, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. It always is fun because it's a good message. Thank you for joining us today and please don't forget to subscribe on our website 
qyourapodcast.com. 